0: Welcome to the Archimedes Podcast, the evidence-based section of the Archives of Diseases of Childhood. In this section, we have a little snippet about how to think about evidence-based medicine or practice it, and then usually a couple of cases. Now these are things that have happened to people in clinical practice, where they've then gone away with a structured clinical question, tried to find the best evidence they can to answer that question, thought about it, synthesized it, weighed it and appraised it, and come up with a solution, a way of taking it forwards for the care of the individual patient and child. The podcast is a summary of those and a snippet of how to do medicine. Well, maybe how to think about evidence-based medicine anyway. The problem that we're faced with at the moment is one around peer review. Now, a traditional approach to assuring oneself of the quality of a journal article was to look at the reputation of the journal, perhaps via the impact factor or whether you'd heard of it before. And an assurance of peer review. This is still in some of the undergraduate style appraisal checklists that you look for. The process of peer review itself may be poorly understood. It's shrouded often with a cloak of mystery and it seems that papers dive into it and then they emerge on the fireside, all silver coated with a sheen of respectability. Now, during the coronavirus pandemic of early 2020, there was an explosion of papers on pre-print servers, and what these are are open access locations where articles that have been submitted for publication but not been subject to acceptance or review of any sort are available to read. These were very much worried about, and the need for peer review was again asserted as a sort of totem of validity. Now there are definitely some good things about peer review. All of our Archie reports are peer reviewed by content experts and then discussion in the editorial team. Peer review both in studies and trials of peer review and our experience as editors we think allows papers to emerge more balanced, clearer, more consistent and perhaps discussing some of the key flaws and limitations within the study. But what peer review can't really do is improve the science of the study in our area. You can't just go back out to that 150 kids you did a trial on and do a few more experiments on them or collect more blood at day 1 and 15. You're limited by improving the way it's presented rather than the thing itself perhaps. When it comes to preprints, we need to treat them perhaps with a greater degree of caution, but we should also hold to the core concepts of critical appraisal. When we're asking people to critical appraise things, we sort of talk about not looking at the introduction and the discussion, but instead really burying into the meat of the paper ask the reports in the preprint service the same questions those of bias and reliability of transferability how can i take this information and put it into mine and and, and are they asking a patient focused question where do these sit in congruence or incongruence with the wider subject literature bring your medical and your clinical expertise to the party Ask if these outcome measures with your patient-facing hat on are, are the ones that people would be interested in. Don't just believe something on a preprint server, particularly its abstract or its cl- conclusion. But don't assume that they're untrue either. Use the same approach. Ask a sensible question, acquire the information, appraise that information, weigh it for its strengths and disadvantages. And only when you've put all of that together should you apply the findings. Now, the first of our clinical questions this month comes from Natalie Smee and Joyce O'Shea from Glasgow in the UK. They ask a question of a 32-week gestation baby baby. 1.7 kilos or so born doing reasonably all right onto CPAP but then increasing amount of oxygen requirement needing to have some form of surfactant applied but this is a rural hospital a long way away from everywhere and and the the current situation would be that the child would need intubating in order to get the surfactant and then because intubated transferred into a central hospital and the question arises not at the time but afterwards whilst thinking about these sorts of things, as to would a way of been doing it have been to use a laryngeal mask airway rather than a traditional intubation and keeping it down there in order to give the surfactant down through a thin tube this sort of approach the insure way of getting uh, surfactant into neonates is certainly present in many places and with the lower need for intubations in neonates there's probably less opportunity and maybe less skill in intubation particularly in uh, trainees that haven't been uh, exposed to as much neonates as some of the older people have been. And so the question arises in preterm neonates that need surfactant, would a laryngeal mask airway versus a traditional intubation be a way of delivering surfactant? The group went out and they looked for the right sort of studies to look at this. This would be randomised control trials comparing the LMA to other approaches. Had 87 potentials, looked at 11 in detail and came down with five randomised control trials in the end. Now what these did was compare either a laryngeal mask as airway and giving surfactant versus continued CPAP or using the laryngeal mask airway versus a more traditional intubation and then delivery of surfactant and then extubation, the insure approach. None of these were enormous trials, the two trials versus CPAP were 26 and 103 infants, the insure ones were 46, 31 and 70 infants. Now, but looking at these the answers came through relatively clearly. The LMA versus CPAP definitely improved outcomes, less need for intubation and mechanical ventilation in the group that had had the LMA approach versus just having CPAP. With the ETT and Ensure, probably benefit to the LMA approach compared to the Ensure approach, but not quite as clear in that group. The important rider on all of this is that the babies were reasonably sized. These weren't tiny babies, generally over 1.2 kilos and in one trial over two kilos another under one kilo so not talking about the smallest of the small what's the bottom line that comes away from this well practically an LMA can be used to deliver surfactant in situations where it's needed whether it is better than using other approaches or whether because of the reduced opportunities to do intubations it would have worse effects overall is still unclear but it's certainly our way forwards that is reasonable and effective. The other one of our case reports is really strikingly different from Laura Prittett and Nigel Curtis from the Royal Melbourne Children's Hospital on the other side of the world in Australia. They tell the tale of a case of an eight-year-old boy who's had recurrent staphylococcal skin infections, often with abscesses and needing surgical drainage. They come from an ID micro background. And the question has arisen as to whether the use of skin decontamination with various types of technique might be a way of reducing the amount of staphylococcus and also reducing the number of problems that this young man would suffer. They went out into the world looking for trials, looking for ways to get evidence to answer this question and found 931 potential papers. These came down eventually into four randomized controlled trials and two retrospective cohorts. Now the types of decontamination varied between these different studies. They used either clohexidine or bleach baths for the skin and they used mupiracin ointment stuffed up the nose between five and seven days. They also varied in whether they treated just the affected child, the index case, or whether they treated the entire household to reduce carriage and transmission between them. The cohorts were both a somewhat biased selection in that these were cohorts of people that had come in and needed surgical drainage for staph skin abscesses. And then some people were given decontamination and some people weren't given decontamination. So there's somewhat of a Either you're giving it to the worst people sort of approach there, or is it that some surgeons like it and some surgeons didn't? Unclear, always a little bit mixed up when you're looking at cohort stuff where you're comparing what's been done to some people versus what's been done to others. The randomized controlled trials are clearer in that sense, but mixed up because they didn't all examine the same thing. Two of them looked at just treating the index case, two of them looked at treating the whole household. Now, thinking about this, from a UK perspective anyway, the idea of telling someone to go bathe in bleach is not on the top of the medical list and for all that an American president might have suggested that it's a good idea, it it does still seem really quite worrying. But it is something that's done Actually, quite widespread, it seems. Now, what we're talking about here is an extremely dilute boot solution to bathe in. So, the sort of level of a few mils or so within a bath full of water, but still feels very ugh. To me, the, the use of something pink that comes out of a bottle that's been controlled by a pharmaceutical company seems feel safer, even though the evidence wouldn't really suggest there's a, uh, a great deal of damage um, to be had if you're using this in, in skilled hands. When you put all of this together, what they found was that undertaking the decolonization certainly seemed to clear the staphylococcal colonization, um, probably a little bit better than just advising people to wash thoroughly. And that if you did this to the whole household rather than just the index case, it probably reduces the chances of the, the, the person with recurrent infections having more infections and also might reduce the chance of other people in that household reducing infections. But it was clear that compliance with these decontamination measures was relatively poor. It, it wasn't always done the way it was said to be and the effectiveness was not enormous. The other thing that's really quite interesting about this is that most of the studies were done in the USA and what I didn't realize was that there's a slightly different strain of staff that lives out there called the 300 strain and that that is more virulent and nastier than others so so maybe this slight benefit can't be entirely taken out and put into other situations in the same way however the way that these uh, clinicians have come to a conclusion is to think that probably it's a reasonable thing to do in that there might be a slight benefit, but it's certainly not a definite definite and that if you can do anything to improve compliance, you might well get better benefit out of it than you see within the trials. (laughs) So that's it for this month, we're still recording very remotely and having lots of zoom meetings and trying to socially distance and keep ourselves and our patients safe from coronavirus and possibly our grandparents more than our patients. We are still looking out for all of your brilliant clinical questions, they absolutely do not need to be about coronaviruses or skin washes or neonates, you could even do them on children with cancer please do submit them to us have a feedback to us about how this podcast is going down uh, and what you'd like to see in Archimedes in future until next month uh, we wish you farewell and thank you very much